The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. And hello, you are listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Layla Zaden. I'm the Managing Director of Generation Progress. And this is Maggie Thompson. I'm the Executive Director of Generation Progress. We've got a really exciting show coming up. We're going to be talking about issues that are facing the largest generation in American history and the most diverse generation in American history, millennials, ages 18 to 35. This is a millennial takeover power hour, so I hope you all are ready for the next 60 minutes of millennial focused issues and really there's a lot to talk about so we're going to start with uh, this issue of student debt and we have two phenomenal guests with us today. Um, Here in the studio with us is our colleague and friend Elizabeth Baylor who's a director of post-secondary education uh, here at CAP. Welcome Elizabeth. Thanks Maggie and Layla. I'm really excited to be here. Great. And uh, on the phone joining us is Mansoor Khan, who's the organizing coordinator at SEIU, another good friend of ours. Hello, Mansoor. Hey, how are you guys doing? Happy to be here, too. Welcome. Welcome. Well, I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about student debt and working at a millennial organization. We hear about student debt all of the time. It's one of the biggest issues that come up with our, our, our members. And really, you know, we've talked a lot about the top line numbers. You know, there's $1.3 trillion in debt. Over 43 million Americans have this debt. It's greater than credit card debt and auto loans. So really, this is a huge drag on the economy, and we've focused a lot on how big it is. But one of the things that we wanted to start out with was really just starting to explore how how did we get here? What were some of the policy failures that led us to what's now, I would argue, a student debt crisis? So, Elizabeth, I just want to start with you. Could you talk a little bit about what what was the creation story of this crisis? Gosh, um, the creation story. I like that. Uh, I guess... uh, There's a lot of things that go into a creation story, and there's a lot of things that are going into the student debt crisis. Part of the reason that we have such a big number, $1.3 trillion, is because there are more more individuals who are going to college than ever before. And that's a good thing. But at the same time, individuals and families are more responsible for the burden of college than they used to be in other generations. Uh, In particular, uh, I want to talk a little bit about state divestment or state disinvestment in public colleges. At the the height of the Great Recession in 2008, students were flooding back into colleges, some because they couldn't get jobs after high school, some older adults because they got fired for their job and needed to reskill. And then at the exact same time, state states and state budget makers were facing a crisis because tax tax receipts were dropping off. And so as a result, they cut trillions 
or not, excuse me, not trillions, excuse me, billions from state governments billions across. Billions with a B. Billions with a B from state governments across the country. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much, Layla. <laughs> I don't want to confuse people. Uh, but as a result, um, you know, today families and state governments basically uh, contribute the same amount to public colleges uh, when a generation ago families contributed much less in tuition payments and state governments really made it affordable for students to attend. And that's one of the big drivers. So the states need to step up. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, I just I just want to harp again on, on kind of the magnitude of those numbers. Like that is that is a lot of money to take out of the higher education system. And I think, you know, you talk about millions, billions of dollars. Maggie, you said we have over one point three trillion dollars in debt. Like that's crazy. Mansoor, you know, I'd love to hear kind of from you. What are some of the other policy failures that you see kind of from from the work that you're doing and uh, the things that you're trying to push to kind of make this situation better? Like, where where did things go wrong? Well, I think, you know, uh, Elizabeth got it right. It's like largely a problem of funding and uh, us, you know, basically we're looking, we're, we're in an era of austerity. We have, I mean, higher education is part of a larger uh, problem with our our tax system, and um, where you know we we have a system driven by corporate interests that puts profits over you know the well-being of the middle class, and I think um, and higher education is no different in that in that regard. We're seeing the results of what I, what I consider a really a political program to um, you know take away public goods and privatize them. And so, I mean, I think, you know, we should also remember that this is not just something that just happened, but it's also been, um, it's actually the, it's a failure of our political system where, you know, um, the whole higher education system was based on subsidizing students when people when they were young in, in exchange for, you know, uh, helping people when they retired. And, you know, at some point, that political compact got broken, and you know, I would say that many people who benefited from this are no longer willing to support stu- younger people. Um, and I think we are working on trying to fix this politically. And a lot of the work SCIU does is around organizing around this issue, because you know, we we keep we see this all the time because we are out there fighting for low wage workers as well. And everybody keeps telling us that, oh yeah, the the solution to this is higher education. Except, except for it isn't because we don't help people get higher education. We are, we keep telling people to go get a degree, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and simultaneously we are defunding it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's like I think it, it ties to a larger sort of um, political program, and I think you know we're trying to tie it, tie this together to our five for fifteen plan, and there's just. Uh, it, and I think we, you know, we, we have to find a way to talk about it so that it fits into a larger program. Yeah, Munster, I think I really want to pick up on one of the things you were talking about. One of the things that we think about all the time in our campaign is really just how student debt, more than any other issue, really illustrates how economic inequality has been driven and has been growing in this country. I mean, this used to be the pathway to economic stability to the middle class, and now that it's something that needs to be debt financed by families, and that debt is often reaching sort of a level where it's it's just unsustainable, this is, this is a huge driver when we talk about economic inequality. But one of the things that you said I think was so important 
important was about how higher education is a public good and that really, you know, profit motivation doesn't have any place in higher education. And I know we've talked a lot about for-profit colleges, colleges that are often publicly traded on Wall Street. You know, some of the biggest ones are University of Phoenix um, and ITT Tech, who recently um, just, you know, had an action by the Department of Education against it because of some of the predatory practices they were uh, they were uh, sort of going into with students. So, I mean, Elizabeth, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how do for-profit colleges fit into this equation and how are they driving this crisis and what can we do about it? Sure, absolutely. You know, my first, my first uh, topic was really about what happens at public colleges, but there's other problems at these for-profit colleges. Uh, about 10% of the American college students attend for-profit colleges, which, as Maggie said, can be big publicly traded companies like University of Phoenix or ITT. Uh, but they also can be small chains uh, in a regional, in a region or in a city, or they can be mom and pop beauty beauty schools that have just one location. Uh, but during the recession, because we now allow online learning, for-profit colleges were able to enroll as many students as they could sign up because they had no capacity issues. They could just add a new server, add a new class, and there you go. And one of the problems about student debt and for-profit colleges is that the students who go to for-profit colleges are less likely to complete than some of the other students in our higher education system. And that's a real problem because the people who struggle the most with student loan debt are the people who didn't finish the program and didn't get the job that they were hoping to get. Um, Before I came to Center for American Progress, I worked for Senator Tom Harkin in the Senate, and I spent two and a half years looking into the practices of for-profit colleges. Um, And some of them are pretty disturbing. Uh, They hire armies of recruiters to follow follow students uh, and get them to sign up. Uh, They pressure them and they use recruiting tactics like pain pills and those kinds of things. We'll talk about it more, but I really think that for-profit colleges are are one of the biggest problems with student debt. Yeah, you make it sound like they're stalking people almost. Like that's kind of creepy. That's that's intense. In some respects they they are. I'm Yeah. And I think uh, I think we'll there's a lot more to say on this topic and Mansoor I want to get your thoughts on for-profit colleges too. Uh, right now we're going to go to break. If you want to call into the show, we are taking callers and you don't have to be a millennial to call. That number is 888-6 Leslie. That's 888-653-7543. We'll be right back after this break life liberty and the pursuit of truth the leslie marshall show 8886 leslie
Welcome back, everyone. This is the Leslie Marshall Show, a special youth takeover edition. I'm Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. And I'm Layla Zayden, also with Generation Progress. So before the break, we were talking uh, about for-profit colleges and how they play into and how they're some of the drivers of the student debt crisis. And we've got Mansoor Khan from SEIU with us on the phone. And one of the things that we wanted to talk about was, you know, there was a lot of news this past week. The Department of Education made ITT Technical Institute, a huge for-profit university, stop enrolling students because of some of their bad practices. You know, one of the students we were working with was just in the New York Times because when she went to ITT, she was being taught by YouTube videos instead of professors. Just the quality of the education was just not there. And, you know, that's something that we've seen a lot when a school operates with profit in mind instead of student interest. And, Mansoor, I know you work a lot with sort of for-profits and on this issue, and I'd love to just get your thoughts on sort of next steps on this and also some of the things that you've been seeing in the sector and how this is driving student debt. Um. I think the next step is I think we should we need to keep in a vigilance, keep pushing Department of Education to um, hold uh, bad actors accountable. I mean, um, I think, and we have to make sure that when these schools do close, that you know we're not the taxpayers and the students are not held held uh, holding the bag. I mean, are left holding the bag because when you know the students are still left with the debt even though IT Tech may be out of business soon. Um, and we, we need to, like, go out there and be proactive about um, policies that um, ensure that when institutions go down or when I, when they're held accountable and they can't operate because they're essentially uh, predatory, um, that, that, that it's not the taxpayers and the students left holding the bag. Um, I think the Department of Education, and in this case, has been trying to do that, forcing ITT to put up cash reserves uh, before um, it took its drastic action. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and so, I mean, I think yeah, we just you just have to keep we just have to keep going, keep uh, keep vigilant, and keep pushing uh, policymakers and politicians to uh, ensure that you know we're not um, you know we don't we we don't look the other way. Yeah, and ideally never let it get to this point. I mean, you know, right. we probably shouldn't let schools operate uh, if they are if they are defrauding students. So it feels like, you know, really um, stopping stopping those practices before we get to, to a point where you have a giant school acting this way would be sort of the, the goal to, to get to in the system. Right. Or has anybody been to the ITT website lately with the ominous kind of we are not enrolling students anymore? It's just like, how does that make you feel if you're a student? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's the financial concerns, but also like, what are we doing to, to support right. our young people, our students, our non-traditional students uh, as they try and, you know, pursue pursue uh, a higher education for themselves? Um, and I think that's actually something that, that Maggie and I at Generation Progress do a lot of kind of work directly with young people to figure out kind of what are these what are these top issues that are going to get you like pushing your policymakers and asking for change and demanding action. And uh, from what we've seen, I think student debt is kind of one of those top hot button issues. Uh, it contributes to a young person's well-being in so many ways or unfortunately their negative economic situation. Um, so Mansoor or Elizabeth, I, I mean, 
between either of you, and I know, Mansoor, you do, you do uh, a lot of work on this, but in terms of kind of the next few months as we're talking to uh, people who have student debt or people who care about um, access to higher education, how are we making sure that this stays kind of a really top of mind priority issue, um, you know, over the next few months? And maybe Mansoor, I know you you uh, have a ton of work on this issue, so would would love to hear from back sure. from you. So I think one of the things that we have to sort of that we're working on and that I I want to work on is you know I think we need more coordination from K through 12 to higher education. I mean this relates to the for profit question a little bit because you know we we represent faculty and you know we hear from them that one of the biggest struggles is dealing is you know, remediation and, you know, we have students who come into community college, struggle, and two years, use up their eligibility, trying to get remedial courses and don't earn a credit and they get frustrated and drop out and then they go to a place like ITT and it turns out, you know, until it's only after they get through part of it or they drop out or they make it through that they realize that, like, oh, this wasn't, you know, they, they weren't actually providing any real education. So mm -hmm. I think some of that is, like, we want to have more. I think that we need to have some coordination yeah. and some, some you know, some way to deal with, you know, what, what we're saying, you know, is ending the school-to-prison pipeline and replacing with the school-to-college pipeline. Right. And I totally. think just having and then working, you know, recognizing that the – we need support around education from cradle to help people get into a career. Absolutely. And, it is just, it, and the, the division between higher education and K-12 has, like, especially if we uh, are problematic, especially if we go back to saying higher education is a pathway to the middle class. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, one of the things that I feel like talking about student debt a lot of times it's a little dark because people, you know, they <laughs> they don't want to think about fast. it. It gets very depressing fast, um, you know, because people don't want to think about this debt. They feel like it's hanging over their heads and it's hard to face it. But I think to end on an up note talking about student debt, there's a lot of things that people can do. So to wrap us up, I'm just going to have Elizabeth talk through a couple options. If you are struggling for your student debt, a few things that you should Google, look up, get some information about. Sure. So the first thing I think was one of the best tools out there is from the Department of Education. It's called the Repayment Estimator. You can log in with your own information, your Social Security number. You can pull up your loans, and then they can tell you about programs that can help you repay affordably. The second thing is talk to your student loan servicer. I know that sounds weird because it's a debt, but the federal government hires the servicers to be available to you to help you repay your debt. President Obama made that a mandate for the, for the servicers. So call them, ask them for the help, and sign up for something called income-based repayment. That's Thanks great. so much, everyone. We're going to go to break, and we're going to come back with some guests on criminal justice reform. So You're stay tuned. to the Leslie Marshall Show with Layla and Maggie. We'll hear back from you guys after the break. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. And I'm Layla Zanin, also with Generation Progress. This is the Millennial Power Hour, Millennials Taking Over, The Leslie Marshall Show. Um, we're going to be talking about criminal justice reform and private prisons for the rest of the hour. So if you have a question, feel free to call in. It's 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888 888- 
653-7543. So I wanted to introduce our first guest, a social justice warrior who I've been working with for years. Welcome, Corey Clemmer. Corey is the, a corporate research analyst with the Office of Investment at the AFL-CIO and has been fighting doggedly on the issue of private prisons. So we're very excited to hear about your recent victory with the DOJ. Yes. Thanks, Maggie. And joining us on the phone, we have Dewan Patterson, who's a community organizer uh, by day and consultant at the Bmore Group, also by day. Uh, and Dewan works pretty closely with, with Maggie and I and our network um, of gun violence prevention, criminal justice reform activists. So, Dewan, we're really excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Dewan, for, you know, first question for you, and I think broadly because of some of the work that, that you've been doing, and I know that you've been leading um, in, in Baltimore, um, you know, the criminal justice system is, I think everybody can, can agree, is not working fairly for people of color, for young people, and that's something that a lot of, uh, you know, people our age, young people, are taking the lead and trying to change. And, Dewan, kind of what are some of the, the disproportionate impacts that you've seen that you're trying to push back on that you're leading the fight against um, when it comes to kind of this, this unfair system that's uh, disproportionately impacting communities of color? Well, here in Baltimore, we all know about the, the level of mistrust that goes on and the, the abuse of power here in Baltimore. So one of the things that I push back and provide the solution on is knowing your rights with police encounters. And what we do here is we do community engagement events across the city. And um, at these events, we have lawyers, Lawyers come in and they speak on knowing rights of police encounters, and um, even down to the housing rights. Because here inside of the affordable housing unit, they are faced with police abusing their power. So we have lawyers coming in talking to them about knowing your rights of police encounters, knowing your rights with um, affordable housing. And there's another piece that does not get as much attention as, as it should is a mental health piece. And the mental health mm-hmm. piece not only on the community side of things, but the police side of things. So at the our community events, we have a family-style dinner, eat together, and we have mental health professionals do a presentation and connect with the community where the police is present as well, and we address some of those psychological needs as well. Ben, that is so important. And and what are some of the, I guess, have you seen the benefit of those kinds of uh, community-oriented engagement events, kind of having multiple perspectives come together for a real, like a real honest conversation? Yes, yes, yes. Um, so one of the things I lead with is um, the events are called Be More Family, Be More Family events, and they have different things with them. Mm-hmm. And during the holiday season, the Thanksgiving meal, we, it's called the Be More Family Dinner. And what's really impactful with this is because we use food as a vehicle to drive community conversation and social change. And that we have different um, entities and corporate sponsors and community members in one centralized location. And we ask people to leave their organizations and their titles at the door. So now you begin to start engaging and seeing people as human beings. And we don't have the status, class, different things like that that separate us and we start to connect with people at a human level and so once you connect with someone at the human level you have a better understanding of who they are and you identify your similarities and instead of the differences then that's what we see a lot and not only in baltimore but in urban america cities across the state i mean across the nation how we 
develop a us versus them mentality and we look at our differences. Duana, I think that's so powerful that you're so deliberately breaking down those barriers. It just, that gives me so much hope for really turning this thing around. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that you know, I also wanted to uh, talk to Corey about, you know, Dewan's talking a lot about sort of community relations with the police, but your your work is really sort of on the flip side of this equation. What happens when people are actually in the, in the criminal justice system or are incarcerated? And really, you know, how are we making sure that that's not a system that's taking advantage of young people and people of color disproportionately. So I think before we talk about the victory with DOJ last week, can you just talk through with us? What what are the problems with private prisons? Why is this something that we need to be concerned about and fighting back against? Well, I think anytime you bring a profit motive into a system that is designed to incarcerate people, you're going to have horrible incentives and horrible mm-hmm. outcomes. And that was pretty apparent from the inspector general report that led to the whole DOJ decision Um, You see higher rates of violence between inmates, between inmates and staff. You see understaffing, overcrowding, abusive solitary confinement. Um, And, you know, it's not really working for anyone, for the workers or the people. And and I love what Dewan was talking about, you know, really bringing both sides together, because as labor, we represent all the sides of this issue. And so it's really on us to find ways to build those connections. And we've been doing, I mean, I've been really lucky to work with an incredible team at the AFL-CIO doing coalition building with all of our affiliates to find ways to address these problems. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to not to overstate the importance of kind of cross, uh, you know, or maybe like leaving your title at the door, Dewan, that you, you said that very well, um, but really finding solutions that as as humans, as uh, you people who kind of share this earth together, like what is what makes sense and is fair and is equitable is just for for everyone. Um, and so, so, Corey, I guess back to you, what are some of the um, in terms of kind of systemic reform that you're pushing for or additional um, steps, I guess, what are some of those um, things that are maybe not not working right now um, that we need to address and we need to fix and we need to take further steps on? So this coalition that I mentioned that we have been building with our affiliates, um, they had a you know deliberative process. We did an educational session and then they voted on priorities that were going to come out of that for the mm-hmm. kind of institutional change we wanted to see. And so out of that, they identified five pillars of work. And so one is the restoration of rights. So people get out and they need access to jobs. They need access to housing, to education. There's incredible barriers for returning citizens right now. So that's one of the, for, that's the first pillar. Um, issues in the workplace. So like we're saying about COs, they have incredible rates. They have higher rates of PTSD than war veterans. They have a life expectancy, I heard, of 54, which is younger than their wow. retirement age. Wow. Right? Wait, it's a, so, so you're talking cor- correctional officers correctional have officers, a life expectancy yeah. of 54 years old. That's yeah. nuts. Wow. It's, and it's a piece of this conversation that gets left out a lot, but it's a huge issue. Um, and the mental health issues that were that Dewan mentioned um, are very real in the criminal justice system as well. Um, so that's the second one. The impact on the communities, how this is a driver of poverty, how schools fit into this is the third. The fourth is privatization, where this profit motive comes in to really create terrible incentives everywhere from, you know, the very first day you step in from the bail process all the way to your parole and probation process. And then finally, just an education campaign to really address the stigma of having a record. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we've started internally educating people in the labor movement, but also we've done a ton of events outward facing that are really designed to change the narrative around this problem and people that are... Uh, that are caught up in the system. That's incredible. And Duan, I know that you have been working not only in Baltimore for a long time, but also 
working uh, with our organization and others on sort of formulating solutions uh, to criminal justice reform from young people. So, you know, just building off of what Corey said, are there are there policies or initiatives that you're seeing either in Baltimore or through um, your network that we need to be pushing um, just really to keep people out of the system in the first place and build those community relations back up? Yes, well, um, one thing that is really dear to, dear to me and as a policy recommendation that we did for the Eric's in Progress report of Fighting for the Future is domestic recruiting from within the jurisdiction that police are policing. That is a really big thing um, that we're pushing not only locally here in Baltimore with under 22% of the population of the police force are residing or coming from Baltimore, which is a stagnant number. And that needs to reflect the diversity and the representation, the true representation of the Baltimore population. Because what tends to happen is, uh, once again, you said earlier, is a warrior mentality. And you feel more so like an occupying army inside communities, and then they will look at you as opposing forces as well. So now we're developing those type of things. And another one is the community investment. Uh, Absolutely. A lot of those, a lot of these police departments have huge budgets. Sometimes the budgets are outweighing the education budget. So, like here, we look at the stats of Baltimore City. Their budget is nearly over half a half a billion dollars, and we're talking about two hundred and thirty-six million dollars for education. And um, wow. when you have such a large wow. budget, you think about how you're over policing inside these communities. And then Baltimore City Police Force is as large, when you talk about per capita, uh, is as large as New York City. So with a smaller, dense population, but then you have a large police force with mm-hmm. a large budget, and what are we doing with that? Are we really solving crime? If we look at the stats, we're not. Baltimore, within the last two years, has one of the highest murder rates in decades. Mm-hmm. So are we solving crime? Are we preventing crime? No. So maybe it's about time that we reallocate and earmark some of those dollars into community collaboration and community investment. And that's one of the I things think, that we're yeah. committed. Dewan, I think you're, you're spot on. Community investment is where it's at. And we have a lot more to talk about on this topic. We're going to go to break. The phones are lighting up. We have a few questions we're going to take after the break. So give us a call, 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Layla, and I'm joined by Maggie Thompson. We're both with Generation Progress, and this is our Millennial Power Hour takeover. Millennial takeover. (laughs) So we have uh, a caller, actually, that we're uh, going to cut to, Troy from Virginia. Hi, Troy. Hey, Hey, ladies. What's going on today? 
Hey, good. How Welcome are you? to the show. Well, thank you for thank you for inviting me. Um, I was telling your screener that um, I'm liking this conversation, but not to be cynical. I think it's a little too little, too late to try to now make reforms after you have done such a great job in decimating black communities and destroying the infrastructure of those communities and pushing those people out in the name of gentrification. What's the purpose now of stopping what you already started? That's one. Well, yeah, Troy, let's let's take that that first question first. And I think, Dewan, um, I'd love to kick it to you because I think this is something that we deal with a lot with our, our youth network is kind of the frustration and feeling like there's nothing that can be done, but that doesn't mean that there is nothing to do. And I think, Dewan, if you want to talk about kind of those efforts and how do you stay motivated in the face of so much um, so much despair? Um, I, I don't have the notion that there's nothing we really can do. I think that we have to focus on the low-hanging fruit and constantly moving the gauge. Even if we talk, even if we talk about slowly moving the gauge, if we examine progress, progress, even if we look at it and compare it to like working out in the gym, to to get that ideal body that you want, there's certain workout plans and reps that you need to do to get there, to even begin to start slimming down and getting ahead. So. When I'm doing the work inside of the community, when I have some some of those small victories but really deep impacts, such as seeing the police get out the car and start doing dances and taking selfies with the community that normally look at the police as, as a resistant-type force and throwing rocks at them. So that's one way we're saying that this level of engagement is actually working. Having police say, hey, I can get a budget where... I could provide a fun wagon that we could play with football, basketball, and things of that nature. That's when I can slowly start to work at the negative narrative and relationship between the police. So that's, some of that is just at the surface level. And even if we were to take it to an institutional level, when we're talking about having a discussion that we need to increase the amount of Baltimore residents inside the police department. Because here in Baltimore, now we got press around that and say that the Baltimore City Police Commissioner has adopted several different programs now that's centered in making sure that current police officers reside in Baltimore, where he worked with the Baltimore City Mayor and a Maryland uh, governor to provide an incentive of 2500 on tax credit if you're mm-hmm. a police officer inside of Baltimore City. So having those small victories is where you stay motivated. And I just, I get a deep, great joy when we have things like that is happening at the grassroots level and at the institutional level. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Duan. And, you know, I think that, you know, Corey, thinking about the, the, the prison system, I know we, we, to echo what Troy said, we're not there yet, and there are still huge problems, but I think that we are seeing progress in your area of work in getting this profit motive and private prisons out of the system. So do you want to talk a little bit about the Department of Justice, Justice's action and also what comes next? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously this is a great step. It's a huge it's a leadership role they've taken and, you know, we've applauded their, the role that they've taken on in doing this. Um, I mentioned some of the statistics from the inspector general report, the higher rates of violence. Um, so, so what they did specifically is following on this report from the IG that cited all these problems that were much worse in private prisons versus, uh, federally run facilities. 
um, is they decided to phase out the contracts. And so that means over the next five years, the contracts won't be renewed and you'll see these facilities come offline and come back under state uh, to be um, federally run again. So the Department of Justice is no longer starting new yes. contracts with these private prisons exactly. that are operating on a profit mm, motive. Exactly. No more it's RFPs huge. for new. Yeah. So it's absolutely a huge, uh, it's a very significant symbol and everyone's very excited about it, but it is actually only a very small part of the private prison system. They, um, it will actually only affect 13 facilities. And this is <laughs> the day this was announced, the two publicly traded prison companies, CCA and GEO, their stock tanked like 30, 40, 50 percent. And it's so crazy talking about the stock price of it prisons. Is. That's just but it's real real, people, it's that's foul. Thing. It's a real investor. I mean, there's people that invest in it and they make money. And I can't Ugh. lie. When I saw it drop 40 percent, I knew I could have made a lot of money because <laughs> this is only 7 percent of their revenue stream. So. You know, this is a step, but it's, you know, and like our caller said, this is, you know, we're not there yet. We have a lot of work left to do, but this is a step in the right direction. And you can see from their financial filings that they're already pivoting. They're looking on, to, like, for what's next. How are they going to make money as this movement gains steam? What are, where are they going to go from here? And they're already looking at alternatives. They're looking at privatized parole, privatized probation, surveillance systems. GEO has a segment called GEO Cares, and they do rehab facilities and everything else, you know, if we're going to look to other ways to deal with this population that's being institutionalized, where are we going to put them? They want to be there to offer this service. And I think, uh, you know, President Trumpka said it the best, we're never going to have a fair criminal justice system as long as there's a profit motive involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, the incremental wins that we are gaining, you know, they, we shouldn't discount them. Mm-hmm. But as you said, Corey and, and Juwan, there and our caller mentioned this too, there's a long way to go. And so as we kind of march to that, that horizon, that, that perfect world that we're all striving for, how do we make sure that we're maintaining the momentum in this conversation? You know, we, in the news this week is Colin Kaepernick uh, sitting down during the national anthem. A lot of controversy around that, but for better or worse, that's putting the conversation in the, in the national mainstream mm-hmm. and it's forcing people to talk about it. So how do we make sure that we're, you know, we're continuing this momentum? And um, Corey and, and Dewan, last question to you is, you know, how, what do we do? How do we keep this momentum? Corey, you first. Okay. So, I, you <laughs> know, I think the work that we've been doing with our coalition is really significant because, you know, the, the slow progress is frustrating and it feels like n- with injustice like this, no solution can come fast enough. But you have to keep on marching, you know, you have to keep on trying. And so this work we've done building a coalition with our affiliates at the AFL-CIO and working with allies outside, we um, it's it's building a foundation for a long lasting work. So I think we've got a really good platform to carry this into the future. Great. And Dewan, what what are your thoughts? How do we keep the momentum? I I would say keep having the challenging conversation at at the grassroots level, at the community level, as well as the national level. We have to keep having those challenging conversations that push us beyond our comfort zone and um, continue to have innovative ways to address it. Similar to the, uh, the no glocks, no cocks, though, that one of the innovative approaches <laughs> yeah. that they had yes. recently. <laughs> but, um, but just as long as you, you, you got to keep it going and the momentum because this is such a necessary and it's a long fight. But count the victories, the small victories along the way. That's that's how I would say that we maintain this momentum. Absolutely. Devon, you closed it out better than I could have. Thank you so much. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, This is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. 
And this is Layla Zayden, also with Generation Progress. We're here with our guests, Corey Clemmer from the AFL and Dewan Patterson, a community organizer with the Be More group in Baltimore. Thank you so much to you both. It's so good having young voices leading on these things and keeping us going. And if you want to keep in touch with Generation Progress, we're on Twitter at, at @genprogress. Thanks.